Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen, brothers and sisters, please do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. In verses 1 through 8 of Jeremiah chapter 23. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Let's ask for God's blessing now on the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, as we can continue to consider the glory of your Son and the wondrous prophecies that were made of him, how we do ask and pray that you would, would help us to see his glory now, the, the, the glory of the one who has worked such a great salvation that it is able to eclipse even the Exodus. Uh, Lord, how thankful we are, how we know it to be true, how we ask that you would, uh, that you would now help us to see the glory of your Son, that we might worship and praise him as we ought. For we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the things that, that I've been, been trying to note at various points, and particularly even last week in the evening service, was that uh, you know the prophets in particular, when there is a problem that is facing the people of God, they always put before the people one hope, and that is the hope of the Messiah. And that is true even here. Here, the, the problem of leadership is being addressed. And what is it when Jeremiah sees that the people of God don't have sufficient leadership? He says, one day there is coming one who will be the great King of kings and Lord of lords, the righteous branch of David, who will be called the Lord our righteousness. The problem for the, the, uh, the that the problem of leadership will be solved when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Now, leadership in itself is important. Uh, this is true for all institutions, and the church is no exception. 
when there is bad leadership in the church, it is the flock that suffers. And this is exactly the situation that Jeremiah is addressing here. And we, we see it even, uh, not even just in Jeremiah, but even all throughout the Old Testament. This is a, this is a common problem uh, in the days of the judges. The waywardness of the people was explicitly tied back to their leadership. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You think of even uh, the language given of all the kings at various points is, uh, you know, for the bad kings, it was, uh, you know, this person did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and even he caused the people to sin. Now, this is not to say that the people are guiltless for their sins, but, it, but it, the point that the scriptures are making is that the poor leadership of a bad king did influence the people towards ungodliness. And it stands to reason, therefore, that the opposite will also be true, that good leadership will, in fact, encourage the people towards godliness. And what Jeremiah here is speaking of is he's speaking of the great, uh, the great consummation of, uh, of that good leadership, and it's going to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as Isaiah is addressing this particular situation for the people of God, it's important to remember the context of Jeremiah's ministry. He is prophesying during the time of the Exodus. He will live through the Exodus. He will actually recount the, uh, sorry, sorry the, the, the exile. He will live through the exile itself. He will recount the exile in his writings. He will speak about uh, the, the terrible things that happened during that time. He will even live through the, de the decisions that come afterwards, whether or not we're going to go to Egypt, what, you know, what we're going to do in terms of leadership after the exile. And it is in this situation that he is speaking about uh, the, the devastating effects of poor leadership. And what he's speaking of is he's saying, you know, uh, in light of this, in light of this poor leadership and for other reasons, uh, there will be an exile. The people of God will go off into exile. Now, he's addressing this uh, situation of poor leadership and particularly with regard to the kings in chapters 21 through this, chapter, uh, through this particular passage. So from ch chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 23, verse 8, he, there is this particular section of the book of Jeremiah that is dealing particularly with kingship and is focusing mainly on uh, the poor leadership that the people of God had. And as we think about that, then it's important to recognize that this messianic prophecy comes as the culmination of this section. It is, a, it is, the, it is the high point of this particular section in the book of Jeremiah. And so the idea is after all these denunciations, after all the problems, what Jeremiah says is that one day there is coming one who will actually be the good shepherd and he will gather his flock from the entire world. And we are to look forward to his coming. Now, uh, as we've been doing through all, uh, with all of these passages uh, that speak of the Messiah, we'll begin by asking the question, how is it that this passage speaks of the Messiah. How do we know that what Jeremiah is speaking of when he speaks of the king, particularly here, that he's actually speaking of the Messiah? You'll notice again how common this is in the Old Testament. Again, that the Messiah is being described particularly as a son of David. This is uh, not, the, the words son of David are not in the text, but you'll note that the relationship to David is very clear from verse five. I will raise up for David, a branch of righteousness. So the idea here is that um, David is the stock, the root. There is someone who will come from that root, who's connected to him as his son. And that branch who comes from David, that is going to be the great king. 
And uh, this, this branch, as we will see, is used in a number of other passages, and it is always used to describe the Messiah. It becomes a, a title that the Messiah bears and always, always in relationship to David. So here we have a prophecy of a coming king who will uh, bring about an, an ideal salvation for the people of God who is called the branch who will come from David. He, he gives them the ultimate salvation and therefore we are to recognize very clearly that this is simply a direct prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now interestingly, as with Psalm 45, there is some indication in this text that the one who comes is actually going to be God that there's actually the, the deity of, of the Messiah is put forward, perhaps not as clearly as Psalm 45, but yet nevertheless it is there. You'll notice that this righteous branch is called the Lord our righteousness. That's the way it's translated here. Uh, it's important to, to note uh, with regard to uh, this particular title that the word Lord, the Lord here is the word Jehovah. So what he's actually being called here is Jehovah our righteousness. He's taking on the name of God and he is in this sense our, right, uh, our righteousness. And therefore, um, this, the, the, the point of this prophecy is to say that the Messiah when he comes is actually going to be Jehovah. Now, uh, you may be thinking uh, that this could be an interpretation that is given. And yet, um, if you know anything about Old Testament names, you'll know that there are many names in the Old Testament, even most of the names in the Old Testament, we could say, by, by a long shot, of the Old Testament names actually have the name of God in them. Most names in the Old Testament have God's name in them. And yet, obviously, we're not to take those names as, as meaning that everyone is God. So how is it, how is it here that we are to know that the Messiah being called Jehovah our righteousness is actually indicating that he is, in fact, Jehovah? How are we to know that? Well, there's actually, there's several reasons how, how we can know that from the text. First, it's important to note that this name is given as part of a prophecy of the Messiah. It's very different from a father giving his child a name that has God in it somehow because he's hoping that the child will have a relationship to God in some way. This is given specifically as a prophecy concerning the child and furthermore, the, 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 the name, the, the way the name functions is to speak about the nature of the Messiah himself. So for instance, another name that, is, uh, it, that has the name of, that has God in the name would be something like Samuel. And that's explained in the text as being, uh, Hannah saying, I asked of the Lord from him, I asked of him from the Lord and he, and the Lord gave him to me. So there, God is in the name, but not because Samuel is God, but because God gave Samuel to Hannah. Here though, as part of a prophecy of the Messiah, the, the Messiah is called Jehovah our righteousness, not because of Jehovah being righteous in some way, but because it's speaking of his very nature itself. Uh, secondly, there are other clear examples in the Old Testament of the Messiah bearing a name with God that points to his deity. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you have the very, fa uh, very famous verse, of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son and, and him being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Of course, God is in the name. Uh, what's important though to recognize about that particular name in that section of Isaiah is that the word Emmanuel, the title, the name will appear in various places throughout that section of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter seven through, verse, uh, through, through chapter 12. And yet uh, then in that same section then, in speaking of this one who is called Emmanuel in, in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, the Davidic son is simply called the Almighty God, which appears to be an interpretation 
of what is meant in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That is, when the prophecy comes that he will have the name Emmanuel, Isaiah interprets that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 as meaning that the Messiah is the Almighty God. He is the Almighty God, and in that sense, he will be God with us when he comes. Furthermore, there is an even clearer connection with that section of Isaiah, as Isaiah 11, verse 1, describes the Messiah as a shoot who comes from the stump of Jesse, the same, the same figure that is being used here uh, in this passage when it speaks of the Messiah as the branch. In both cases, the Messiah is described as the son of David in the sense of coming from, from David as, again, a root. David is the root, and then he is the one who branches off from him. And uh, therefore, we're to recognize that the one who's being described in Jeremiah 23 is meant to be understood as the same one as is described in Isaiah chapter 7 through, through 12. And there, the Messiah is clearly called God. He is clearly called the Almighty God. Fourthly, it's important to, to, to keep in mind the context of Jeremiah 23. There is a contrast between the unfaithful kings and that of Christ. Now, this is particularly done with the contrast between Jesus, on the one hand, who is called Jehovah our righteousness, and the name Zedekiah. Zedekiah is one of the kings. Now, the reason this is so significant is when Jeremiah denounces Zedekiah in uh, chapter 21, Zedekiah... That name means Jehovah is righteous. So it's very close to what is being described here in Jeremiah chapter 23. And the point is, is that uh, Zedekiah's name means Jehovah is righteous, and yet Zedekiah himself is unrighteous. What Zedekiah had only in name, the point that is being made is that the Messiah is going to have in substance. He is given essentially the same name, but as a form of prophecy wherein he himself will fill up what Zedekiah could never do. And therefore, we are to understand that the, the name Jehovah our righteousness is meant to be a prophecy of the nature of the Messiah himself. And so this, so this is the way in which this passage speaks about the Messiah. Uh, what then is being said of Christ? We know that this passage speaks of Christ, but what is, what is the point of this particular passage? You'll notice that the focus... The focus is on the coming Messiah working a climactic salvation wherein the people of God will be fully saved. So, again, because of the, the unrighteousness of the kings that have come before, there will, in contrast to that, be days, uh, days coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will appear. And in those days, the people of God will be fully saved. The exile is coming because of the ungodliness of these kings, but there is a full salvation coming when? The answer is only when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, then we will know uh, that God's people will in fact be saved. And so the point of the passage then is, to, is again to contrast these two kinds of kings. Uh, you'll notice that in, uh, in verses 1 through 4, there is, there is this first contrast. In verses 1 and 2 in particular, there is a, a denunciation of the, the ungodly shepherds who scatter the flock. And this is meant to be understood as the, the climactic denunciation. As I mentioned, this whole section is about, uh, of Jeremiah is about condemning the, the kings who uh, led the people astray in various ways. The flock is scattered, the, which is a figure for the exile. And the, the people are, are in a situation of great desperate need. Uh, as I noted, that the, the, the people are guilty of, for their own sins, and yet 
Uh, what is being said here is that there is a special responsibility that those who are leaders bear uh, for the sins of the people. Uh, this is really a great warning as well for anyone who will, will, will strive for any kind of leadership. Uh, those in the church, poor leadership in the church causes uh, spiritual harm uh, to the whole flock. Furthermore, even uh, we could say this applies to political office as well. Those who seek for political office, if they are not using their authority to good and holy ends in accordance with the word of God, they will be guilty not only for their own sins, but even for causing others to sin. Not to the exclusion of the guilt of people for their own individual sins, but nevertheless, truly, there is an added responsibility and guilt for sin if you cause other people to sin, if you put the temptations in their way. And so what Jeremiah speaks of this, and then, but then he, he prophesies of better days. You'll notice in verses 3 and 4 that there is a, uh, the, the beginnings of this salvation is described where Jeremiah prophesies that he will gather the flock out of all the countries where he's driven them and they will be fruitful and multiply. That language is, uh, comes from Jer Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Uh, we will be fruitful and multiply. The same thing that he had commanded to, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And uh, there is this way back out of, the, out of exile, back into the presence of God. And at that point, God will set up shepherds over them, and in those days, they will be saved. Now, in light of this prophecy, one of the things that's so common in the prophets is that they very regularly will speak of the coming salvation in the Messiah as a gathering from all the nations and a return from exile. And they, they so regularly say that. This is one of the texts that says it. And this, brothers and sisters, is why it is so significant when John the Baptist comes and he is described as being a voice in the wilderness who prepares the way of the Lord, making straight his paths. The question is, what are the paths? Why is it in the wilderness? What, what is going on with John the Baptist? The point is, is that the people of God are always in exile. They are in the wilderness and they need to be brought back from the wilderness into the presence of God. John the Baptist goes into the wilderness to preach, to proclaim that the way is now being made to bring the people of God back from every nation where, they've, where, where they have been scattered. That is to say that John the Baptist going to the wilderness to pr proclaim the, the, the way of the Lord being prepared is the signal that every prophecy with regard to the return from exile, that all of it is being fulfilled now. It's being fulfilled in those days. And if you were to ask, uh, where is this way? Where is this highway uh, that Isaiah speaks of so regularly and that is quoted and applied to John the Baptist? Well, Jesus Christ himself tells us this in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only real way out of exile is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a physical path you walk on, it's a person that you know. And if you know that person, then the exile has ended for you. And you are now back in the presence of God. And this is the thing that was promised, that there are, there are coming days when, uh, when the Lord will gather from the furthest corners of the world all the people, all the flock that he had scattered and bring them into one. And that through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, you'll notice that, there, that in verse 4, before there's actually a formal, a formal prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, verses 3 and 4 are really about the effects of what will happen when Christ comes. You'll notice, though, that there, are other, that there is actually other leadership that is mentioned in verse 4. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, not one shepherd, but many shepherds, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking. Now, who are these shepherds in verse 4? Who are these shepherds? They, these are shepherds who will come to shepherd the flock of God when Christ appears? Well, the answer is that they that this refers to pastors. It refers to pastors in the, the New Testament church. Uh, as you think of even the word pastor, um, it's important to, to recognize where that word comes from. Um, it's very simply just the Latin word for, for shepherd. Uh, I, I am a pastor insofar as I am a shepherd for God's people. Uh, the, if, if, you, if we were Latin speaking, it would just be the, the most common word uh, for shepherd. And thus, the, 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 the prophecy is fulfilled. We, we know that this prophecy is fulfilled and that this blessing is on the people of God when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has good and faithful pastors who are proclaiming the word, who are feeding the flock, who are, who are caring for them, and uh, who are providing the leadership that they need. And part of the, the prophecies then of the coming of Christ is that in the days of the Old Testament, there was insufficient leadership. In the days of the New Testament, with the, the coming of Christ, not only will Christ be this great king, but also God had promised, has promised, not even just here in Micah 5 as well, same pro promise that comes, that there will be, uh, God will provide for the people of God such that they will, uh, that they will have the blessing of having good leadership over them. Now, at the center of all these blessings is the king himself, who is described in verses 5 and 6, the one who is called the righteous branch of David, described as the king who rules wisely. He is the king, and you'll notice that even though in verses 5 and 6, the word shepherd is not used of this king, that the, the whole point of the text is to say that this king is, in fact, the, the, the shepherd. Um, all of the... the the bad kings were described as poor shepherds. Then there are these other shepherds who are raised up, but the, the, the head of these shepherds is meant to be understood as this one who is the righteous branch of David. Uh, in contrast to Zedekiah and all the other faithless shepherds, Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And this is why it's so significant even further that Christ would describe himself in this way. Uh, Christ is, uh, even further in, in that text in John chapter 10, he describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Then he says, I have many sheep who are not of this fold, who are scattered all throughout the, the, the world. I must gather them and bring them into the, the one fold so that there will be one shepherd and one flock. Uh, clear, clearly speaking about the fulfillment of this and many other texts in the prophets, uh, wherein the, the Savior would be a shepherd who would gather the people of God from all the four corners of the world. Jeremiah is prophesying in the days of exile, and when he is speaking about the exile, what hope does he put before the people of God? What must happen for the exile to end? How can the people of God recover from, their, uh, from all the bad kings who seek to destroy them? And the answer to all of those questions that Jeremiah himself gives is Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ. He is the great king who will rule as the righteous branch raised up from David. Uh, now, the last thing that is said of this salvation comes in verses 7 and 8. 
And this really is an amazing thing that is said, uh, that the, the salvation that the Messiah will bring will be so great, Jeremiah says, that in that day, it will equip, eclipse and dwarf even the Exodus. So even the Exodus will, will no longer be remembered because of the greatness of this salvation that is to come. Uh, one of the things that's just amazing about the Word of God is the way everything is fulfilled and even in ways that go beyond what one would expect. Uh, here we have the fulfillment of this prophecy is, is so clear and, and obvious in terms of the way in which it's been fulfilled. And yet it is fulfilled in a, in a way where most people don't even realize that it's been fulfilled. Um, because it's, it appears to me at least that many Christians do not recognize how absolutely climactic and foundational the Exodus was for the entire Old Testament. That this became the way in which God was described. This God, who is the God of the Old Testament? He is the God of the Exodus everywhere. The prophets always describe God as this is God, the one who brought up his people out of Egypt. Everywhere that is said. It is absolutely foundational. And yet, I find that very often that needs to be explained to Christians. It needs to be explained to Christians because we naturally only think of God as the God who has saved his people through Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Jeremiah is speaking of. In those days, you would only ever describe God as God. Who's God? God is the one who brought his people up out of Egypt. For, for, for a thousand years, that was, the, that was the way in which God was described. And yet what Jeremiah is saying is, he's saying, you know, there's, there's that way in which God is described, how he has always been described. You think this is the, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, uh, all through the prophets, as I said. And yet what Jeremiah is saying is, there will be, there will be days coming, if you can even believe it, there will be days coming when people will forget even the Exodus. They, they, will, they won't even call God the God who brought up his people out of Egypt. They, they won't even describe God that way. They will now refer to God as the one who brought his people from the furthest nations of the earth, the one who gathers the nations through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has worked a salvation for the entire world. And it will be so much greater than the Exodus that, that people will, won't even remember that that's how God was called. And it, it is just interesting that in terms of the, the, just the natural way in which people think, in which Christians think, this has come to pass. This, this has come to pass, even with, with uh, Christians just generally thinking about the, the, the Christ-centered nature of the Bible and the natural strangeness of thinking about uh, God predominantly in terms of bringing his people out of Egypt shows that what Jeremiah had prophesied has come to pass. There has been the, essentially the total eclipse of the old Exodus because there has been a new Exodus that has happened in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of all these things, so Jeremiah is prophesying of this sort of salvation, that there is this, this ultimate salvation that will come, that will be the, the definitive salvation from that point to the end of time, that this salvation comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what, what are we to do? What are we to think when we read prophecies like this? The first thing we're to, to recognize is that these were future days for Jeremiah, and yet we are the ones who celebrate the reality that these things have come to pass. We are living in the days of the return from exile where God is gathering people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and bringing them in. We, we are living in the days where we do call God 
the God who has worked this salvation through his son. And we don't call God anymore the God who worked the salvation through, uh, uh, through the Exodus. Now, uh, as you think about this, you can see this all throughout church history. The people of God are being saved. Pastors are being raised up to care for his people. All throughout the history of the church, we can see that all the nations are being gathered in through the outpouring of the Spirit. Who, who could doubt that the word of God has been true in light of all of these things? Who can doubt that the coming of Christ is actually the fulfillment of this prophecy? And one of the implications, therefore, is that we as a church must be committed to seeing the nations brought in through the preaching of the gospel. This is, you'll notice, this is the thing. God is known for this. Even as he was known for being the God who would bring up his people out of Egypt, now he is being known as the God who brings all of the elect from the furthest corners to which they have been scattered, bringing them into one flock where they will be with God forever. This, this is the plan of God, and it will happen even as it has been happening. And it is for us, therefore, brothers and sisters, to be about seeing this continue. That is to say, one of the, the very clear implications of this passage is that it, it must produce in our hearts a zeal for missionary activity. It must produce in our hearts a zeal for missionary activity to, to see what Jeremiah prophesied come about, to proclaim to the nations that the exile is over, not just for Israel and Judah, but for all the nations, to proclaim this message that your exile from God due to your sin is ended. The moment you turn to Christ, he is the way out of the wilderness. He is the way back to God. And it is through his blood that you can be cleansed from all of your sins. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that God would do this work in our day and that he would use us to this end. Now, the second thing that you are to, to recognize about this particular passage and the implication is that you are, it is that we as a church not, ought not to be discouraged at the state of the church today. Now, this can be something that um, is, is very easy for us to fall into. We see the darkness all around us. We see the great power of those, the influence, the, 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 the wealth of those who are opposed to the church. And yet, uh, we aren't living in the days of Jeremiah. There will never be another exile like there was in his day. There will never be because the way out of exile has already come. There can, there can never be the same kind of darkness that conquers the entire world as there was in the days of Jeremiah. You, you, you think of how, how about Jeremiah's message is real hope for the people of God in his day. It's real hope. But yet think, um, nothing he said is going to thwart the exile. The people of God still must go through the exile because it, the, the hope will never be realized in their day. Jeremiah is prophesying of other days. And he's saying, you know, hold on because the Messiah is going to come, but the exile is still coming. And you're going to remain in exile until the Messiah comes. But brothers and sisters, we live in the days where the exile is at an end. Christ is the good shepherd. He has laid down his life for the sheep. The elect are being brought in. And God has decreed that not one of the elect will ever be lost. Uh, God, God's people have suffered in the past from not having good, good kings. They, they had... They, they suffered because they had Zedekiah when they really needed Jehovah our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we have the king, Jehovah our righteousness now. Therefore, as we look at the state of the church, as we look at the state of God's people, let us not lose heart, but let us rather continue to labor for the advancement of the kingdom of God.
to see the elect brought in, to see their exile end. Let us pray continually for the outpouring of the Spirit, knowing that he who pours out the Spirit is even now at the right hand of the Father, and that he has received the, the, the Spirit to pour out on the nations as a reward for his sufferings, and therefore he surely will do it, and all will be accomplished. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for these wondrous prophecies. And Lord, uh, we, we can truly see that what Peter has taught us is, uh, is true, that, uh, that these prophets, they inquired, desperately wanting to know more about the sufferings and subsequent glory of the Messiah that was revealed in them, and that it was revealed to them even further that they were not serving themselves, but actually us, for they were prophesying of the days that we are living in. They are prophesying of the days that we ourselves are experiencing. Uh, Lord, how thankful we are for the Word of God that works such great wonders in this way. And how we do pray that you would fulfill all the things that are spoken of in this passage, that you would pour out your Spirit, that you would raise up many shepherds, many pastors in the church of your Son, that the preaching of your Word uh, would be blessed that all the nations might be gathered in and that we might be strengthened, that we would not lose heart, but recognize, that we would recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah, our righteousness, that he has come and that this is what we celebrate, that he is here, that he is, that he is here even with us, that he is even now reigning at your right hand and that the church therefore will be built. Lord, help us, we do pray, to see these things, grow us in our faith, for we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.